welcome to Worth It, a podcast brought to you by Proskauer's Private Client Services Group, covering a wide range of topics concerning estate planning, wealth transfers, and important legal developments and other issues our clients frequently face when organizing their estates. My name is Dan Hatton, Associate in Proskauer's New York office. In this episode, we'll be discussing why clients should strongly consider planning with lifetime trust for their children, grandchildren, and more remote descendants. Joining me for this episode is Nat Bertsall, Senior Counsel in Proskauer's New York office. Welcome, Nat. Uh, thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining. Let's start at the beginning for this question. When would a client consider creating a trust at all for his or her children? There are two situations where a client might create such a trust. You know, one is during a lifetime when a client creates and funds a trust for a child in part to move assets out of the client's name. So the client ultimately has a smaller taxable estate at death. And then the second situation is actually at death when a client provides in a will or other estate planning document how children should inherit assets when the client dies or, you know, when the client and the client's spouse die. That leads to a big question. If I, as a token of my admiration for you, wanted to make a gift and either leave you a bequest, would you prefer to receive it outright or would you prefer to receive it in trust? I've been waiting so long for somebody to ask me that question. I would 100% want to receive that gift in trust. Thank you. You know, a planner, I love trust. And that's always our default recommendation if the dollar amounts involved are substantial. And to be clear, throughout this episode, we're talking about irrevocable trusts, trusts that can't be changed not revocable trusts, which are kind of like will substitutes. I'll acknowledge right off the bat that outright transfers can be simpler and more straightforward, and there are some extra costs involved with trusts. You know, a trust may need to file income tax returns, which results in additional accounting costs. You need the help of a lawyer to create a trust, and then from time to time thereafter to assist, you know, for example, if you want to change the trustees down the line. And sometimes children are very wary of a trust, viewing it as an imposition or or representing a lack of confidence on the part of their parents and the child's ability to handle their own finances. But in the end, I think these negatives are minor compared to the many benefits. And what are those benefits? I think for purposes of this discussion, we can put the benefits into four broad categories that overlap somewhat. And these are just my personal categories. This isn't out of any you know, trust handbook. And I would say the first type of benefit is that assets in a trust are not reachable by a child's creditors. And that's because the child doesn't legally own the assets, the trust does. So if a child causes a car accident or declares bankruptcy or has some other calamity in their life, the assets of the trust can't be reached by third parties. And this is particularly beneficial if a child ends up working in a field with a high risk of malpractice litigation, you know, like a doctor or an attorney. In most cases, you know, the assets in the trust should be protected from creditors and not subject to judgments. What about in the event of divorce? Is the child divorcing spouse considered a creditor? In that same context? Yeah, that's true. But I sort of consider this to be the second of the four benefits I mentioned. The fact that a trust is not reachable by a divorcing spouse under most state laws. There are some potential exceptions, and extreme facts can lead to extreme results, such as if, if the trust is the only source of income for both the child and the child's spouse for a long period of time. However, usually an asset held in trust will not be subject to equitable distribution or community property claims in the event of divorce. A lot of clients 
ask this when you bring this up and want to know about a prenuptial agreement, if that's enough, instead of keeping the assets in trust. Can you tell us a little about that? If you've got a child who's willing to ask for a negotiated prenup with a potential spouse, that's usually a good idea. And that's a great idea. But you can't guarantee that a prenup is going to happen or that the terms of the prenup are going to adequately protect inherited assets or that the child isn't going to later voluntarily commingle assets with their spouse, regardless of what the prenup says. For instance, you know, putting inherited property into a joint name with their spouse. And you particularly can't guarantee any of those things when a child is still young or when a child hasn't even been born yet. And you don't know who they're going to grow up to be, who they're going to marry, or whether you, the donor, will be around to see any of it. So there's a lot more certainty with the trust where the person giving the assets gets to make some of these decisions rather than just hoping that their child will make good decisions down the road. What about the third benefit of, of a trust that you mentioned? The third one is tax savings. Using trusts to avoid taxes that might otherwise be imposed in the future if the assets have been given to a child outright. And I'll say off the top that there are lots of different types of trusts, right? RATs, QPERTs, SLATs, life insurance trusts. I know you've discussed the tax advantages of some of these specific types of trusts in other episodes, so I'm not going to go into specifics on any particular type of trust. But in general, by transferring assets to an irrevocable trust, the hope is that you can avoid future estate tax and possibly another kind of tax called the generation skipping transfer tax or the GST tax, which is imposed when assets ultimately pass to grandchildren and more remote descendants. For instance, made during your lifetime, the goal is to remove assets from your own name so that they aren't subject to a state or GST tax to your death. The earlier that you do that, the earlier that you put money in trust, the better, since all future appreciation on those assets grows free and clear of any estate tax. So for example, if you put a million dollars in a trust for a child, and then it grows to three million by the time you die, that full three million is not subject to any estate tax at your death because it's an asset of the trust. It's no longer yours. At present, the estate tax is considerable. You know, it can run up to about 50% in the aggregate if you live in a state like New York that imposes its own state-level estate tax on top of the 40% federal estate tax. Wouldn't those same tax savings exist if you made the gift outright to the child rather than in trust? In both cases, the asset doesn't belong to you. So why is it any different? That's true. You have the same estate tax savings if you gifted that $1 million outright to the child. Still, there's no estate tax at your death since you don't own it. However, if you make that gift outright, those assets may be subject to estate tax at the death of the child because they belong to the child. So at that child's death, that $3 million or whatever amount it's grown to will be added to the value of his or her other assets and maybe subject to estate tax. But if you gift and trust, you're avoiding the imposition of estate tax as long as that trust continues. So there's no estate tax at donor's death. There's no estate tax at the child's death. There's not even any estate tax at the death of the grandchildren or more remote descendants who can step in as beneficiaries you know, when the child dies. And that's a lot about the transfer tax savings. Are there income tax benefits to a trust as well? Yeah, there, particularly for a trust created during lifetime, there is a huge potential benefit. And for this purpose, we're going to call the creator of the trust the grantor of the trust. So if that grantor is given certain technical powers over the trust, the trust is considered a grantor trust for income tax purposes. That means a lot of things, but most importantly for us, while the grantor is living, all of the income earned by a grantor trust is treated for income tax purposes as if it was earned by the grantor. And that means the grantor pays 
all of the income tax for the trust. That is a huge, huge advantage. Every time the grantor makes a tax payment instead of the trust, and that includes ordinary income, capital gains, everything, it's like the grantor made a tax-free gift to the trust. You're essentially allowing the trust to grow tax-free as long as the grantor is living. And so that's the third benefit. What about the fourth benefit? What's that category for you? I think the fourth benefit is just one that may be most obvious to someone hearing about trust for the first time. And, and that's, you know, the ability to pick trustees and set trust terms, protect a child or other beneficiary from making bad choices that would deplete the trust assets. You know, setting the terms of the trust, the grantor can restrict or encourage certain investments, you know, indicate under what circumstances distribution should be made. And these provisions last even after the client is gone and is no longer around to express their wish. You know, in a lot of cases, we end up recommending that the client give the trustees, you know, absolute discretion, make distributions whenever they deem advisable, and that that provides a lot of flexibility for addressing changing circumstances in the future. But, you know, of course, it's a case-by-case question. You know, there are a lot of specific circumstances where different trust terms are needed for specific reasons, such as if you have a child with special needs or disabilities, or if a child has a drug or alcohol addiction, you know, whatever the circumstance, the trust can be drafted in a way that provides the necessary protection. And I think default example of when a trust is necessary is if you die while your children are still minors or young adults. Not many people want to leave assets to a child is too young to responsibly handle that wealth. Someone, the trustee, needs to handle financial matters until the child is of age. And even once a child turns 18, I try not to talk in absolutes, but it's generally never a good idea, even though you could give a lot of money to someone who is 18. And it's rare that someone does so. Much more common is putting assets in trust, appointing one or more trustees to oversee investments and distributions, and then providing that when the child attains some specified age, they begin to have a measure of administrative control over the trust. And what is administrative control over the trust? What does that mean? Well, for example, a child at a specified age chosen by the grantor can be granted effective control over the assets of the trust. And this is done, for instance, by allowing the child to act as a co-trustee or granting the child the power to remove and replace the other trustees or even granting the child the power to be the sole trustee. We often do this or suggest doing this as a sort of two-tiered structure where you're picking two different ages. So at one age, for example, age 30, when they reach that age, the child can be granted the power to act as the co-trustee with someone else. Child can't make unilateral decisions, and the other trustee still effectively controls all distribution decisions. And we think of this as the apprenticeship stage of the trust, where the child is involved in trust decisions, seeing the assets, seeing how things work, but can't really have complete control. And then at some second age, for example, 35, the child can be granted the power to fire the other trustees and appoint trustees of their own choosing, for instance, their best friend or Maybe at that age, they get the power to act as the sole trustee. Does it cause any problems if a child acts as his or her own sole trustee or otherwise have these administrative controls? In terms of tax problems, beneficiary who's a sole trustee shouldn't be granted the absolute discretion to make distributions to themselves for any reason whatsoever. That's problematic. And that sort of level of power should only be exercised by a co-trustee. However, a beneficiary acting as sole trustee can safely be given the power to make distributions to themselves for certain specified purposes. Classic example being distributions limited for the purposes of providing for the beneficiary's health, education, maintenance, and support. So that works. What about a child's residence? Is a trust a good option to own a child's home long-term? As an estate planner, my bias is to keep assets in trust as long 
as possible. Clients often see that a child wants to buy a house, and then they ask the trustees to make an outright distribution of cash so the child can buy the house. And that's fine, but where possible, I much prefer to arrange things so that the trust itself buys and is the owner of the residence. The child and his or her family can still reside in the house, and you can even provide that the child is responsible for paying you know, most of the day-to-day -day expenses of the house. But it's the trust that's the legal owner. It's the trust name on the deed. And that way, the house isn't subject to estate tax. That the death of the child isn't reachable by creditors, isn't reachable in divorce, all of the benefits you know, we previously discussed. And if the house is eventually sold, the sale proceeds stay in the house. They don't go to the beneficiary. Thanks for explaining those options. I think it's helpful for clients to understand that a trust can be as rigid or as flexible as they might want, depending on the circumstances. You know, we talked a lot about that. Is there anything else clients should consider when deciding whether to use lifetime trust for their children, their grandchildren? children, great-grandchildren, and so on. Well, I think it's important to be realistic about the ongoing costs of administering a trust. There are some extra legal and accounting fees. And also, depending on who is appointed as trustee, the trustee may want compensation for you know serving in that role. And because of these additional costs, a trust might not make sense for you know, a smaller disposition. But these costs are likely worthwhile for a lot of clients who are thinking about transferring, you know, generational wealth rather than, you know, tens of thousands or, or maybe even hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I think you know this as well. For a lot of people, the hardest part of this process is picking trustees and really identifying someone in whom you have that level of trust to give them so much responsibility and control over your child's future. Everything, you know, becomes easy if a client has one or two people in their life that they are comfortable appointing in that role. If there isn't anybody, things are a little bit harder. And then you've got to think about appointing a trust company or a professional trustee, which has added costs. And maybe the terms of the trust would look a little bit different. You know, these are all problems that can be worked through working with an estate planner and giving you all the options. No doubt about it, there are some more steps to doing a trust. Got it. Thanks, Nat, for coming on Worth It and discussing planning with lifetime trusts. You know, as you discussed, we generally recommend that clients consider planning with lifetime trusts, especially when transferring significant assets to their children, their grandchildren, and more remote descendants. This is because of the tax benefits, the creditor protections, the spousal protections, and administrative flexibility that allows client children to have as much control of the assets as the client wants, while still protecting those assets on various fronts, and including in particular from divorcing spouses. So thanks again for talking us through this. Thank you, Dennis. With that, we'll wrap up this episode of Worth It. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. To join us for future episodes, be sure to subscribe to Worth It from Proskauer on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Thank you for listening.